Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we are speaking with Lindsay Gordon, a marine conservation working at the nexus of humans and oceans and the head of global campaigns of Parlay for the Oceans, a global network where creators, thinkers, and leaders raise awareness for the beauty and fragility of our oceans and collaborate on projects that can end their destruction. A particular focus of Parlay for the Oceans is preventing and significantly reducing the amount of plastic in the world's oceans. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. The enormity of removing the 150 million metric tons of plastic currently in the oceans around the world and the additional challenge of how we must stop using so much plastic in our lives are truly daunting. I must admit, I struggle to see how we can quickly address them. One source of hope is that Parlay for the Oceans is seeking nothing less than a total systems change for how we use and consume plastic. Through partnerships with global corporations, artists, filmmakers, fashion designers, and scientists, Parlay for the Oceans works with alternative business models to synchronize the economic systems of humans with the ecosystems of nature. In the conversation today, Lindsay and I will explore the crisis of plastics in the oceans, how destructive this crisis is for nature and people alike, and the unique approaches that individuals, communities, organizations, and companies are taking to address the crisis. Lindsay, welcome to Voices of Nature, and thank you so much for joining us in this conversation today. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. It's an honor. Lindsay, you have such an interesting and rich background. Um, in particular, how diverse communities of people, be they policymakers, marine experts, uh, donors, cultural and indigenous leaders, come together to actually create and, and manage large-scale marine protected areas. And I think that is that's something that's going to play out throughout this conversation. And so can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how that, how your background led to this really really uh, interesting career that you found yourself in? Yeah, completely. I guess I guess it all started with my journey with the oceans. I grew up near the oceans and always was inspired by it, but it really wasn't until I had the opportunity to dive when I was 16, where I had this knowing that this is what I needed to do with my life. I found myself underwater in that calmness under the ocean and that inspiration just completely overwhelmed me. All the complexities of life became really clear and just the innate beauty and pristineness around me was something I'd never experienced before. And so I knew from that moment on, it was something that I knew at the very core of me that this is what I was meant to do. And what I was meant to do was protect the oceans. So from there on out, I began my journey at a young age for, you know, discovering how I could best protect the oceans. It was a big question. And that took me to many places. I uh, studied in the Galapagos and worked a bit there as well. I worked in uh, the British Virgin Islands and really got to know uh, these coastal communities who live and breathe the oceans. And this theme kept coming up, this, this theme kept coming up that was this global to local disconnect. 
when it comes to protecting our oceans. These local communities that I was working with had such a voice, so much knowledge, generations of, and in some ways also act as the canary in the coal mine for what's going on on a global level with climate change, with our environment, with our oceans. They see the small changes. Um, they see the effects on the ground and it all trickles down to them. Um, and they have this innate traditional knowledge that is really not, there's no way to encapsulate that in a published paper, one study or, you know, one management protocol. So I wanted to merge this local to global disconnect in order to protect the oceans. And so I decided to go to grad school to do that, to empower this local knowledge and to work alongside uh, coastal communities. And in going to grad school, I decided to, you know, tackle this, this big challenge with this tool called marine protected areas. And what marine protected areas are, they're like national parks for the oceans. So they're huge swaths of the oceans sometimes that governments typically declare as protected. And the most simplest way to do that is through something called no-take zones. So no-take zones are really what's on paper and a policy for no fishing. So suddenly we run into a problem there. Um, and I wanted to look at this problem in graduate school, which was you take an area where people are working and living along the sea. And in this management protocol, nearly overnight, you say you can no longer fish there. That is a shock to families that survive their livelihoods. Their economic security relies on the coast, the sea, um, oftentimes fishing as well, whether it be small scale fishing or larger scale. So there was a problem there, um, a problem that we needed to solve when it comes to ocean protection and when it comes to this local unclarity of, of the, the outcomes when we have these top-down decisions made. So I decided to dive into this in grad school, and I worked alongside an amazing team of people from around the world, including marine managers and remote island communities, such as those in the Cook Islands and Kiribati and Hawaii and academia. I worked under an incredible professor named Patrick Christie, and we decided to look at the solutions to this challenge that, you know, really people are trying to protect the oceans, um, but it's not quite landing because of this disconnect. And it's proving sometimes quite hurtful to uh, local economic securities. So we came together and we created a think tank uh, where we had this massive knowledge exchange. Uh, 100, over 125 experts came together uh, from over 17 different countries. And we heard from the local community leaders, um, marine managers, academia, international NGOs. And we sat at a table to merge this gap. Um, and from that, I really started to get this idea of this, this method of local to global gap merging, this coming together to a table from people from sometimes opposing views, sometimes in places of conflict, is the way that we're going to start to formulate solutions on a global scale and create a community for change. 
And that's not only relevant for marine protected areas. Um, that can be relevant for a whole number of massive global issues that we're dealing with today. So it was an incredible experience. We came out with best practices for how to integrate what we call human dimensions into marine protected areas. And that kind of lens, I wanted to take after grad school and apply it to another topic that was coming onto the scene, um, has been a problem for decades, but is starting to you know, grow in terms of visibility um, and solution making, and that's marine plastic pollution. So that led me to where I am today. I, I took that lens of working with communities on the ground, formulating solutions, and working together as a global network. And I took that into where I am today. Which is Parlay for the Oceans. Which is Parlay for the Oceans. So before we talk about that organization and your role in that organization, I do want to, to touch on something that, that you really spoke very passionately about a few minutes ago, which is the kind of the approach of this, of the bottom-up approach to sustainable conservation. Because uh, this has come up in, in a number of the other podcast episodes that we've had, be it in, in Africa, West Africa, India, Brazil, so on, which is on one hand, there's this rush to impose almost a top-down structure. Uh, there's this fear that we have to address these problems right away. Let's just come up with a solution, solve the problem, and move on. So often that is that imposition is Western driven mm-hmm. and it doesn't allow the communities to create something that is truly sustainable. And by sustainable, I mean actually able to sustain the test of time and to really be integrated into the culture. So how do you how do you balance like this rush to get things done with desire with frankly the need and the desire to come up with that something that actually sticks and stands the test of time? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I think it takes a realistic timeline and it takes collaboration. Um, So really, I would say dedicated time for what I think of as exploration, which is relationship building, which is understanding, learning. And once you create that foundation together and a big part of the foundation is trusting partnerships, um, from there, you know, it can be a collaborative effort in action, in decision-making. But I think that beginning part is key to understanding any issue and solving any challenge. And the whole concept of partnerships is really at the core of what Parlay for the Oceans does, right? And it's, and it's work to achieve its vision. So can you now talk a little bit about that organization and, and how it is, is working to achieve this um, the system change that we talked about before? Sure. Yeah. So Parlay is an international NGO. And really our mission is to raise awareness for the beauty and fragility of the oceans and to collaborate on projects that end their destruction. So that we focus on the many threats to the oceans. Really since 2012, since we got started, our main focus is combating marine plastic pollution. So the question is, How do you do that? (laughs) Well, we function as a global collaboration network. So it's really all through partnerships um, in terms of strategy creating and solution making. And uh, we actually, we devised a strategy 
um, to implement our partnerships. And it's called the Parlay Air Strategy. So air stands for every other breath we take comes from the oceans. And the A in air stands for avoiding plastic whenever possible. The I stands for intercepting plastic, so removing it from our communities, our coastlines, all the way into our oceans. And R stands for redesign. So redesigning not only the plastics, um, the plastic economy, but actually the material itself, how we use materials as a society. Complete systems redesign. So what I really love about that strategy is that it can be implemented by anybody, by an individual, by governments, by companies, by communities. And so that's really kind of our, our North Star um, in what we're doing here is that, that multifaceted approach because there is no one solution here. And how do you fit into all of this? Yeah. So what I do is I work with our amazing network on the ground. Um, our network is in 30 countries. Uh, it includes over 250,000 volunteers and a multitude of collaborators, including governments, um, surfers, uh, companies on the ground, uh, coastal communities, indigenous leaders, really champions for the oceans around the world. And I have the honor every day to work with them on the ground um, to implement this Parlay Air Strategy, which looks like in practice in, in the countries we work in, um, at the most basic level, cleanups with volunteers to not only intercept plastic, but to educate, inspire, create more ambassadors for the ocean. We have youth education programs. We work with scientific communities on the ground on research and design. And we work with um, complete waste management redesign. So looking at in communities where either the waste management for recycling is not yet set up or can be improved upon to, to set that up um, alongside the local community and then to work to what we call upcycle that material that is already out there. So not just set up recycling systems, but how can we take a material such as plastic that's already out there and how can we make it of higher value into a system that is not going to be a throwaway system, a single use system, a system that brings value and storytelling to the cause. So I own a pair of the Adidas Parlay for the Ocean shoes, which to my understanding that they are the fibers in the shoes are made from uh, recycled fish nets that have washed up on the shores, I believe, primarily in West Africa. So is that an example of what you mean by upcycling? Yes, that is one example. So one of our partners, actually founding partner, Adidas, we work with them in this kind of upcycling way. Uh, that's one of the ways that we work with them. And specifically, yeah, that thread we call ocean plastic. So we're able to take uh, plastic waste, uh, specifically single-use plastic water bottles, and upcycle them into thread. And really, I think what's so amazing is not just the material redesign itself, but the story that it tells. So the first shoes that we came out with them were actually in collaboration with an incredible global organization called Sea Shepherd. 
And we were able to, with them, integrate the gill net that was intercepted by Sea Shepherd during a 110-day chase in the high seas to um, capture an illegal fishing vessel, fishing toothfish uh, around Patagonia. And we were able to utilize that net. I think it was about a 45-mile net, something like that. So so they were dragging a 45-mile net behind the ship and essentially catching everything in that net that came near it? Yeah, yeah. It was a a gill net. Okay. A 45-mile gill net catching everything in its way, including bycatch. Um, and we were able to to bring that net back to life through these shoes, which are really like like I said, messengers for the cause. And I think that is one of the most powerful aspects of upcycling out there. Yeah, I have to I have to admit, as one who's not always the most brand conscious person, but when I when I put those shoes on, I actually feel like I'm an ambassador, not just for the product, but also for the oceans. It's actually a cool feeling, and I. I find myself actually telling people about the shoes and like being really excited and, and telling that story. It's kind of fun. Yeah, that's incredible. And again, it all goes to creating kind of this global community, this cohesive global community where we can share from local to global um, this incredible message and knowledge. And so how can we, you know, how can people like, like me, uh, an occasional buyer of Adidas shoes, participate in this global community? and and either to help achieve the systems change that you've talked about or just help interest and mobilize and excite others to use a bit less plastic in their lives? Sure. Well, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. It's twofold. It's what can we do in our daily practices? And then what can we do to inspire and educate? And in our daily practices, it's really comes down to how can we be avoiding plastic wherever possible? So um, the key offenders that we look at first are the single-use plastics. So, Bob, you and I are really fortunate that we live in a country where we can drink water that doesn't come from single-use plastic water bottles. So that's an easy one. Um, You know, we have the water filtration systems. We have that system set up. And then there's the single-use straws. We can, you know, most, most of us can avoid using that as well. So it's really, I think, a beautiful exercise. And I I do this to myself often, just opening your fridge and and seeing what you have there even and saying, you know, what can I do to avoid? Can I bring um, a reusable bag to the grocery store next time? Can I get less to go items? Can I reduce the amount of plastic bags I'm using um, significantly? And I know it's a major challenge and it's not easy. Um, but I think the thing that I like to tell people the most is that it's okay to take baby steps as well, um, because that's better than kind of giving up hope altogether. So avoiding plastic is huge. And then another key aspect of that, um, which a lot of people are talking about recently since this documentary on Netflix came out, Seaspiracy, is that a major way to have direct impact on the plastic pollution problem in the world is to avoid seafood because one of the key contributors to marine plastic pollution in the oceans are these nets in the oceans. 
And these nets are either discarded or lost or thrown out nets at sea. We call those ghost nets. And every time that we find seafood on our plate, order seafood, we are contributing to this system of commercial fisheries um, that is directly responsible for a lot of the plastic out there in our oceans, killing sea life. Um, so that's that's another one to add to the list. So and is then, the solution to that to uh, if you're you know if you're a lover of seafood is the solution to that to um, you know buy seafood that's been sourced from the the farms rather than the as you said the kind of the open water uh, fishing practices. Well, the farms are a challenge in themselves um, due to the polluting nature of them, the way that most of them are set up. They typically leach byproducts from the farms. Uh, usually they are open water farms. So even though they are more or less contained to a certain area, yep. there is seawater that's connected to the ocean that is going in and out of the farm. And every time it goes out of the farm, it will take the byproducts of the fish um, and any kind of kind of unnatural chemicals that the farmers are inputting into that fish farm to keep viruses out, to keep the fish um, healthy enough for people to eat, which we can beg to differ if it's healthy enough. That actually is connected then to the global ocean. <laughs> whether we like it or not. So I wouldn't recommend um, farm fish. I would recommend avoiding seafood as much as possible. I've taken a vow myself to eliminate seafood from my diet. And again, you know, I think it's better for everybody to, you know, take the steps that they need to take rather than not engaging at all in this way of having direct action. Well said. So you, you're starting to touch on what I see is, at least in my mind, the biggest challenge, the biggest hurdle to overcome, which is, as you said, you know, plastic is, is woven throughout every aspect of our lives. You know, and I, I would argue some, some of those uses, a lot of those uses are good. I mean, they're good, valuable uses, right? I mean, it's Tupperware that you, you put your leftovers in. Instead of throwing food out, you save it, you eat it later. It's, you know, the, all the things that we use to make our life easier. How do we, how do we make that transition from, yes, absolutely getting away from using so much plastic in our lives to actually achieving that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's, it's stepping into our power as consumers. Every dollar that we use, we have purchasing power over. So, you know, what can we do starting today to avoid plastic as much as possible in terms of what we're purchasing? What kind of companies are we supporting? Um, are we buying plastic Tupperware or is there an alternative? Is there glass Tupperware? Are there any companies out there um, in terms of, let's say, for example, textiles where we can be using our purchasing power to purchase something organic cotton or hemp rather than synthetic materials. Um, there's amazing initiatives out there that are focusing on biofabrication, which in parallel of avoiding plastic goes into 
we need to have alternatives. We need to have solutions. We need to have and be reinvesting in, in different materials that are not this kind of never-ending, uh, destructive form that we never even anticipated in the beginning. And so I think biofabrication is going to be the future in that way. It's, it's really growing our own materials from, from natural products. And in that way, we can ensure a more closed loop system. So I think, Bob, to answer your question, yeah, it's us as consumers realizing that we have power and that companies are listening to that. Well taken. So what I'm curious to hear what you think of what has become my own personal commitment over the last few months, which is um, I live very close to the you know, Potomac River um, here in Washington, D.C., you know, goes all the way from Pennsylvania to the Chesapeake. And I love to, to paddleboard. I love to canoe on the river. Once in a while, I swim on the river, in the river. You know, there are days it is just staggering as to how much plastic is floating by me in that river. And what I've started to do is when I go out for a walk or a run, I every time I see plastic um, or trash for that matter, uh, especially if it's near a storm drain, I pick it up and I try to, or I tried my best to pick it up and you know properly dispose of it, knowing that I can't always eliminate plastic from my life. I'm not always doing a great job on that. Is that at least a decent baby step, or do I need to be more aggressive in trying to reduce the amount of plastic in my life? Well, it is a great thing that you're doing, Bob. And I think, you know, it's something that we should all aspire to do is, you know, if we see something, you know, pick it up. And that goes back to intercepting something that we can all be doing. Um, at the same time, it is twofold. So, uh, Bob, it sounds like you're avoiding plastic when possible as well, which are trying, I, trying to, trying, trying. To. it's not easy. Um, <laughs> I, I like to think of it as like our kitchen sink. So what we're trying to do with plastic is to turn off the tap while providing alternative material solutions. So the tap is how much plastic we're consuming and how much plastic is being produced. So while we're you know, trying to also scoop up some water at the bottom of the sink, as long as the tap is still on, right. we're going to be always scooping up that water. (laughs) So um, we can work in parallel. And that's how I found many global solutions that I've tried to tackle uh, work. That's the way that they work. They work in parallel. There's not one approach that we can just be taking. So talk to us about that that parallel solution, right? I mean, we've been the last few minutes talking about this very much at the micro level, things that you and I do on a daily basis. The you know, to your point of turning off the tap, it's really the vision of some of the the large scale, almost market wide partnerships that you and the team at Parlay have assembled. Explain to us like the rationale behind creating such large partnerships with global brand, brands like Adidas, and what you're trying to achieve in those. And then maybe give us an example of you know if there's one partnership that just shows how this works and shows how it can have an impact. What is that partnership? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I love the idea of partnerships because again, it goes to bridging these gaps. Um, How can kind of diverse acting partners come together and formulate solutions and create a knowledge exchange, an ongoing one. 
And, you know, from there is where we get our creative solutions, our new ways of understanding. And I think this also bleeds into my ideas of having the ocean be a medium for peace and partnerships being kind of like this living representation for that. So, you know, going back to the Adidas partnership, I think it's really inspiring what Adidas has done um, over the past, you know, five years. Um, They not only are working to create with us these shoes made out of ocean plastic, but looking at their entire supply chain, um, all the way from eliminating single-use water bottles completely from all of their offices, um, that's touching on education, to all of their employees, as well as ambassadors, um, influencers that they work with. But they also have committed um, to eliminate virgin plastic in their supply chain by 2024. And what does virgin plastic mean for the uneducated of us? Sure. Yeah. Virgin plastic is plastic uh, that is newly made from fossil fuels, creating this thing called plastic. And then if that plastic ever makes it back into uh, the supply chain through recycling, which less than 10% of plastic in this world actually makes it back into the recycling system. And that's what we call recycled plastic. Got it. Um, Yeah, so I think it's incredible that major companies with um, huge audiences are sending these messages and are not only sending these messages, um, but are actually doing something about it. Um, Because, you know, it's really nice to educate and to talk, but we have to walk the walk too. And I think that's what these companies are realizing And especially, you know, we only partner with companies at Parlay that can walk this walk, that make these commitments with us. Um, And and I think that's the future. And I think that's what this next generation of youth are going to be demanding um, for the future. I agree. And, And that's something that has come up in some previous conversations in this podcast. And to be honest, it's quite heartwarming to to hear that. And now. I want to I want to go to where this all really leads to. I mean, this is not your passion for the sake of needing a passion in life. This is not the mission of Parlay for the Oceans because Parlay for the Oceans needs a mission. What is the ultimate reason why we need to intercept, <laughs> reduce and eliminate plastic not only from our lives but frankly from the ecosystem of planet Earth? It ladders up to something really really important. What is that? Yeah, it's that our our oceans are dying. And this is one of the major threats to our oceans right now. And and it's it's connected to climate change as well. Um, Plastics are made from fossil fuels. There's a study that came out recently by a scientist named Sarah Jean Royer that shows that as plastics break down, as they photodegrade by sunlight, they actually give off greenhouse gases, uh, such as methane. So that contributes directly to climate change, another major threat, not only to our oceans, but to our entire survival here on this planet. We're really facing this instability in the system that is our oceans 
that control our climate, that give us life, that give us every other breath. Um, and it's a fragile system because it is completely connected. There are no political boundaries of the oceans. There's no kind of um, distinct terrains. Everything is connected. So once the kind of balance gets shifted, which it has through uh, the challenges that we're facing in the oceans, it's very tricky to shift it back. And, you know, if you look at the global statistics, every minute the equivalent of a garbage truck of plastic is entering our oceans. It's just too much pressure on an already fragile system. So that's the side of the oceans and we can go more into you know the fragility of the oceans the beautiful biodiversity that this system provides um, and then we can also go into the human health aspect of that plastics are something that we created um, something that was meant to be a really useful tool for humans when you know, yep, when that's very true yep yeah and you know it wasn't meant to be this destructive thing um, it was really, it was a design failure. We didn't think about that. This is a material that never fully breaks down. Um, it can break down into nanoparticles, but it will always be there. And it's also, um, there's something that holds about 4,000 different chemicals going into the material itself. Um, so it wasn't meant to be this, but, but now it's actually coming back to harm us. And recent studies are looking into the human health effects of plastic. And I can almost bet that most of us here sitting here and listening to it have um, some traces of, of plastic in our bloodstream. Bob, I don't know if you want to go a bit more into that with me. I, I do. And, <laughs> and <out there. laughs> I absolutely do. And, and here's you, you touched on three very important concepts that I would like you to to link together um, because I, I think it's very important for all of us to, to explore this a bit more, which is the importance of biodiversity and frankly, our accelerating loss of biodiversity, the health of the oceans, and then ultimately our human health. Again, you know, you're not concerned about plastics because you hate plastics. You're concerned about plastics because of the ultimate consequence, which is the health of all of us. Mm -hmm. so can you maybe even draw upon your background as a scientist, like draw all that together for us, connect all of that. Sure. Yeah. So looking at the global system, I think more than ever, we're recognizing that we are inherently connected to the health of the environment and oceans around us. So if the oceans die, frankly, we die. Um, so we need to, I strongly believe, uphold the health of the oceans, how we're treating our oceans as we would ourselves and our bodies and our communities um, and our ecosystems here. And, you know, this is a key aspect of one of the threats is, is plastic pollution today, alongside climate change, alongside overfishing. Um, so I do feel that, you know, we've never had more knowledge than we do have today. And therefore it is us who are living on this planet. Um, it's up to us to take control kind of of not sit in the back seat anymore but come into the driver's seat and really take ownership of what's happening here. Yeah, um, someone 
in a previous episode put a very fine point on this, right? I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna kill the planet. The planet was here for billions of years before we were, and it's gonna be here for billions of years after. We're actually not gonna kill nature, right? Nature, even after humans depart, nature is still gonna exist in some form. And it may not be able to sustain human life, but it will exist. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing through all these reckless actions is actually killing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Everything else around us is going to endure in some form or another, except for us. It's more or less, Bob, exactly what you're saying. It's like a mirror to us. So it's up to us. And and I think I feel hopeful with, like I said, we've never had more knowledge than today. Um, and I think we've never had more momentum than today. And, and this growing consciousness that we are inherently connected to our systems um, continues to grow. And um, that's why I love doing what I do, really, is to see that grow each year. Yeah, so let's let's now play this out a bit more. We we've done enough talking about the problems, and we've done enough about the, talking about the crisis. Let's let's talk about how we get to a better future. So, how do we start turning this around? Yeah, I mean, it starts with all of us, Bob. Um, we can all take the actions, uh, you know, that we've talked about avoiding. We can all be intercepting in the waterways we live next to. And we can all be working um, where we have influence in our workplaces, in our families, in our communities to redesign the way that we're approaching our relationship with the oceans and our systems. And I think a lot of that comes from inspiring. So whenever we can, um, if it's a genuine inspiration that we can share with others that creates this love and this connection to the oceans, that is going to to trickle down into actions in ways we may may never see come back to us. But that's how my journey started. My journey started with inspiration. And I think it's really helpful to know the facts. It's sometimes helpful to see the gloom and doom, but that inspiration needs to be there in order to be able to visualize and come together for a better future. So I'm going to ask you a question I've never asked anyone on this podcast before, sure. <laughs> uh, which is in, in any number of years from now, when you're at the end of your career, you're at your retirement party and you look back and, and you, you think of that one thing, that one thing that you did that, to your point, triggered this inspiration that we so need, what's it going to be or what do you want it to be? Hmm. I almost don't want it to be something that I would know if that makes sense, because I think this trust in these small actions and the way that they affect behavior and spread is what keeps me going. <laughs> kind of a non-answer to your question, but, but truly, I, I do have faith in this kind of underground movement of change that is that is pushing the tides forward on this global movement yep well said so now to bring it to the the actionable and the concrete you know you've given a a number of examples of of how all of us at the individual level can can connect and intercept and so on um at the at the very beginning you talked about parlay for the oceans being this global campaign that is recruiting, you know, volunteers and, and actively seeking volunteers to help. So if, if, if someone is, is suddenly passionate about 
reducing plastic and saving the oceans and they look at Parlay for the Oceans, how do you, how do you get them involved? Like what, what can they do to help specific to your organization? Sure, yeah. So anybody um, has the opportunity to join in by signing the Parlay Air Pledge. That's the easiest way to start, which is ple- pledging to avoid intercept and redesign plastic. And then in the countries we operate in, we host uh, volunteer cleanups. It's been a bit different since COVID, but hopefully... Um, hopefully we'll the light happy. is at the end of that tunnel, but yeah. The light's at the end of that tunnel. And um, so we like to invite... Um, you know, pre-COVID, as many people as possible to come out and help us during our cleanups and join the movement in that way in person. Um, So reaching out through our website is the best way to get involved in that way. Um, And then there's also organizations uh, that are working in countries that we're not working in uh, that we always are happy to connect people with. There are so many people out there doing so many amazing things and, and we're all doing it for the same cause. Um, And that's what I love. We actually work with two incredible organizations in South Africa. Um, One is called Sentinel Ocean Alliance based in Cape Town. Um, They do incredible work with not only cleanups, but education, youth education. And then the other is called the Litter Boom Project um, based in Durban and also working in Cape Town. And uh, they have massive uh, cleanup projects underway to intercept in the riverways um, before the waste hits the ocean. Um, so yeah, just to name a few of the incredible organizations out there that are in Yeah, area. and that is that the concept of intercepting is, is something that is, I think, a, a growing recognition of an area of potential focus for Global Conservation Corps because we work near Kruger National Park, which is, you know, very Northeast uh, South Africa, obviously incredibly landlocked. Uh, But just as there's a massive problem of plastic in the ocean, there's a massive problem of plastic in these wild, wide open spaces. And, you know, just as, as aquatic creatures can absorb plastic, so can land-based creatures. And, you know, we're trying to find a way to start bringing plastic out of the park. The challenge is it's such a remote location. It's hard to bring it into the, into some kind of recycling or upcycling, you know, scheme. But, um, but that's something that we very much want to start exploring in the coming months. Yeah, that's exciting. Let's talk. I mean, really, it's just as much of a problem on land as it is in the ocean. It's just, uh, it just comes in a different form. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it, it is within, you know, the local community's power to communicate this, educate and, and take action on that. And that's what I find so beautiful in my work is that it's different everywhere and everywhere. It is the champions who know and breathe their ocean and land who, who create these local solutions. Um, and then inspire these solutions to spread elsewhere. And that's a great lead in to the last question I want to ask you, Lindsay, which is what gives you hope? I mean, you are, you're staring a massive challenge in the face and there's got to be days. It doesn't feel like we're going to pull this thing out yet. You continue to do it. Uh, You continue to just have this incredibly positive can do attitude. Why is that? How do you find that? How do you find that positive energy and that passion to just keep 
to keep forging ahead in the face of these many challenges? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. I, it's twofold for me. One would be a question that is more internal. What, what gives me the hope to keep going each day? And that is every time I dive beneath the ocean surface or snorkel um, or just take a plunge, it takes me back to that time when I was 16. Um, and I remember crystal clear that feeling of inspiration of the complexities just trickling away of this innate, powerful beauty that is just begging for us to let off <laughs> the pressures and, and let this beautiful ocean um, heal itself as it once was. So that, that just natural energy that I find um, when I step into nature is what keeps me going. And I've heard from many other people that they've experienced the same phenomena that has led them to their missions, their goals, and to keep them inspiring. That gives me hope as well. And then the other thing that gives me hope is the younger generation. You're seeing all these you know, kids or, or young adults who have the knowledge at their fingertips and power at their fingertips through social media, through you know, email and, and outreach. And they're able to, to form these massive movements. Uh, if you look at Greta Thunberg, it's, it's incredible what she's done, the power that she's had um, on a global scale. And so I think this point in time where we're kind of at the nexus of it's no longer a top-down mechanism that we're going to use for solutions on a global level. It's this bottom-up, again, rising with extreme power and extreme knowledge and technology alongside this appreciation for uh, the oceans and how we are connected inherently to them. And that's what gives me hope. Well said. And that's a, a wonderful way to end the conversation, Jose. So thank you so much for taking time today and just sharing your, your insights. But really, I think most importantly, your, your hope and your passion, because that's really what's going to um, inspire all of us to make the changes we need to, to save the planet and to, to be honest, uh, to save ourselves, to save our health. So thank you. Awesome, Bob. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Take my pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.